and I've got across from me Rio Ferdinand. Rio Ferdinand from Manchester United literally flew all the way over to China because he wanted to see the presentation, Football Starts at Home. I spent a couple of hours with him in a room, in a hotel, and after I showed him the presentation, this is exactly what it did. And I wish I could do a good British accent, but I'm not going to attempt it. He sat back and he crossed his arms like this. And he said, is it too late for an eight-year-old because I've been doing everything wrong with my son? Welcome, everyone, to Minds Your Business, or as I like to call it, your new favorite podcast as Jimmy Conrad, which is me, and Dr. Lee Hancock break down the world around us one mind at a time. We are thrilled to have one of the best youth coaches in the world, Tom Byer, joining us shortly. But before we do, I want to check in on my friend because that's always an important thing to do. So how are you holding up, Lee? That's first. And second, how are you feeling about me speaking in the third person in the intro? Oh, wow. I mean, let's tackle you first and then I'll talk <laughs> about me. I mean, look. No, I'm just kidding. Let's just go to you. That's just a joke. It's a bad joke. We all know why you do it, but we can talk about that down the road. <laughs> uh, in terms of me, I'm great. You know, the, um, the, the, the beaches are open, the sun is out. And so down surfing with the boys and, you know, living the dream now. I mean, look, when, when, when that sun's out, it's fantastic to get out and about. So I'm great. Yeah. How important is it to have that balance in some ways to get out of the house, to do something different? Obviously everybody's been you know, stuck in their houses for the most part, staying at home, being smart. But, but just in general, let's say that was left out of the equation. I know you were doing this anyway. How important is it for you and for your kids to, to have some contrast to your day? Key. The boys have been stuck in the house. I mean, I've got three sons and um, teenage sons. And so basically they've been yelling at each other and beating on each other in between assignments. And so being able to get out and about is, um, is important. And if you, <clears throat> if you do just too much work, you know, or, or too much time inside without, without any movement, I mean, you're going to get stale. You got to break it up, you know? And so for us, the breakup is getting outside and moving around and, and, um, you know, taking in the sun, whether it's a run or a walk or down at the beach, you got to get out or you're not going to be as productive in, in your work. That's for sure. Yeah. It's really interesting. Cause I'll start, usually I will start my day with a lot of energy. And then at some point I just get really, what am I doing with my life kind of? <laughs> and I looked, I looked at screens for 11 hours yesterday, like from 6 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. I was with producer Monty, who you, you guys can't hear, but we can see him on the Zoom. He, I mean, we were all just, I mean, our eyes, I don't know if we blink, you know, and then I feel this, this really weird malaise that seeps in. I'm like, what is going on? And, and I, I'm sure and I hope people can relate to that because I don't want to be alone. I don't want to be alone in that feeling. Dude, you're, you made a living with your body for, for, you know, 10 to 15 years, including school and all these types of things. And, and so now you're going to go from, you know, from 60 to zero, well, maybe 45 to zero. Easy, easy, easy. Come on. Uh, and, and now you're in behind a desk and you're going to be looking at things and talking into a microphone and you got to break it up. I mean, just think yeah. about, just think about what, what us mere mortals have to do that, that weren't athletes. We've got to get up and at them as well. So no, it's massive. I'm, I'm sure that took a toll on you for sure. Yeah, I, I'm still thinking about you taking a shot at my speed. So I mean, unnecessary. Come on. It's a softball. It's a softball. <laughs> it I threw a softball. myself a softball. <laughs> That's fair. All right. Well, we have a special guest joining us today, Mr. Tom Beyer, who I mentioned is uh, one of the top youth coaches in the world. 
And I think when I say youth, people think, oh, well, you 10, you 11, you 12. No, this guy gets after it from like age four. He, he wants kids touching the ball at a very young age, especially at home. He's written a book, Soccer Starts at Home, and the influence that parents can have on the development of kids. And he'll get into that, of course. He also, in my opinion, revolutionized the youth game in Japan. He's got an interesting backstory uh, and, and what he focuses on and what matters when he starts handing off kids to at that U10 level. Now, you've known... Tom, for quite some time, Lee, are you, you excited to have him on? Yeah, I'm excited to to chat with him. I mean, you know, Tom and I are friends and, and colleagues and have done some stuff together. And and I always love talking to him, you know, and listening to him and, and what he has to say. And and hopefully we can get him to just chat, you know, about about, you know, not just his program, because that's 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 a lot of people know that. But about who he is as a person and kind of how he got there, you know, because mm-hmm. his road is a really interesting one. And, and it's not talked about enough. You know, I mean, we talk about your road and everybody's got that story. And I think what makes his, what his journey compelling into his work um, is that, that time that he took to, to become a professional over in Japan. And, and again, we'll talk to him about that, but yeah, I love chatting with, I love chatting with him and you know him as well. So it'll be good for you to catch up with him. Yeah, it's been a while and I'm excited to pick his brain, mainly him and I, or at least I do complain that U.S. soccer and MLS and any other big league here in this country doesn't utilize them like they should. And, and that always gets me pretty frustrated, but we'll get into that. I'm sure. in a lot more now, before we get to the man myth and legend known as Mr. Tom Beyer, consider this as your reminder to please drop a rating, preferably five star and a review preferably about how great we are on Apple and any other platform that allows you to do so. And then we will read your comments on a future episode so that we can continue to give your ears warm audio hugs with our voices. And that actually sounds like a weird, visual lee right <laughs> oh a yeah for bit. sure like warm well, audio with your ears and our mouths i said voices i you know what we don't even have to get into that let's, not, let's stop 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 lee i don't even want to know enough goofing around let's get to our special guest yes tom buyer it's so good to have you on the show thank you so much for your time yeah hey guys it's great this is the highlight of my week to spend it with you guys that's <laughs> Uh, your check is in the mail for saying that. Thanks, Tom. <laughs> Tom, great to see you, buddy. Yeah. Hey, Dr. Lee, how are you? I'm excellent. I'm excellent. I haven't seen you in quite some time. And so, and I haven't talked to you in quite some time. We're on, we're on a little chat link on uh, WhatsApp and we're always blowing each other up with YouTube clips and, and this, that, and the other, some, some for public consumption, some not for public consumption. <laughs> no, um, this, is, this is great. I'm uh, I mean, Hey, I just didn't realize this is going to be such a professional job here today. Right, Listen, we're, we're not messing around on minds your business, you know, <laughs> we, 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 now we've got three minds today, plus our crack producer. So we're in business. Oh, Tom, man. I want to, I want to chat you up because I know you're, you're busy with stuff in the States and, and in Asia and Australia. Um, and I want to talk about soccer starts at home because I think that's how a lot of our listeners will probably know you. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I know you on the personal level and, and I, and I've always been interested in your journey, you know, I mean, your journey from, from the States and going over as a young man and playing in the J League when, quite honestly, there probably weren't a lot of Americans. And, and so I'm interested in, in that journey and kind of that, that mental approach on, on what it took to, to make it over there. So, yeah, and it's funny because I've never really talked to you about any of this. And so I thought, man, this is going to be – this is fun for me. Well, yeah, well, thanks. Um, well, one correction. I didn't play in the J League. I played the pre-J League. That's how old I am. The J League, <laughs> the J League started in 1993. Okay. Um, and and I played uh, in the late uh, 1980s. 
Um, the first, by the way, just a little trivia in case anybody's playing along there at home. The first American to ever play in the J League. Do you know who that is or who that was? My guess is Dan Kalichman. I was going to say that. That's it. Dan Kalichman. <laughs> yes. Yeah, Dan, Dan, the Dan, my Jimmy's, man. Jimmy's, Jimmy's quicker on the buzzer. That's the only reason he wins at Jeopardy. Uh, I also had the right answer, but I was, I was contemplating the right answer. I, I was a little bit too old um, by that. You know, I, I got over to Japan. It's kind of funny how everything works in, in, in life. And I, I'll give you the short version, but I actually, I played over in a team called Hitachi. All the, you know, all the J League clubs, even to this day, a majority of them are owned by big companies. Toyota, Yamaha, Nissan. So my club was was Hitachi, who plays in the J League under Kashiwa Reisol. And uh, it, it's kind of funny because I was actually literally the first foreigner, not just American, but first foreigner to ever even step foot onto the onto the training pitch um, at Hitachi. And then uh, when the J League started, I guess I, I, I wasn't good enough. So they brought in Kareka. So <laughs> I actually okay. played with my, my team. But I got onto that team, though. It's interesting because my college coach in upstate New York, a guy by the name of George Visvari, most people know him in the coaching circles because he, he was even awarded the Walt Chiswick Award a, a few years ago at the coaches mm. convention. Well, he, he was buddies with a guy by the name of Hans Oft, who was a Dutchman. Mm-hmm. who had a very long kind of a, a career here in Japan. He was he was the first ever Japan national team foreign head coach mm-hmm. um, when they just missed out getting into the 1994 um, World Cup. But through that relationship, I got introduced, and that's how I wound up at Hitachi. Didn't have a, I wasn't there for, for many years. I played a couple seasons there. Um, but that's basically how I, I got over to the Hitachi side. And then uh, after I hung up the cleats. uh, What was the hardest thing culturally? Because that's not an easy thing to do as a young 20 something. So culturally, like what was that? What was the most difficult thing? Was it, was it the language? Was it the the lifestyle? Was it the food? What was it? Yeah. Well, to be honest, D, D, all of the above. Uh, Excellent. (laughs) I didn't provide that answer uh, request. uh, How did you manage it? So how did you stay? Yeah, but but it wasn't really until I decided that I was going to stay in Japan and try to make a coaching career out of it that I really needed to start focusing on the language. You know, if you go over to a, a you know, the problem also here in Japan or in, in a country like China is, is that the reading and the writing is so difficult. For example, if you go to a European country, you know, even if you can't read or write or understand or, or, or you know, uh, some of the other languages, French, Italian, whatever, at least you can read it. That's what I meant. Mm. You, in, in Chinese and in Japanese, you can't read it. So, I mean, it's tough, obviously. The food as well. I remember this funny story. I used to, I'd eat dinner in the in the cafeteria and they'd always have every, every single dinner, lunch, uh, breakfast, lunch and dinner, they serve rice obviously, right? That's the main staple. And I would take this, I would take this sauce that nobody puts on, nobody puts on the rice. And I'd put that on because I just couldn't, I couldn't just eat white rice with no kind of nothing on it. I can today, right? But that was like a big deal, man. The guys used to come by my table and they'd be like pointing and look at this guy. He's, he's, put, he's putting this like barbecue sauce on his rice. <laughs> So anyway, were, the, were the players welcoming back in the day? Did you find that? Yeah, it's funny because I was the first ever foreigner. 
here in Japan, I mean, which is, which is, there's some good things about that. They, they kind of automatically put you on a pedestal. And I'm not just talking about with football or soccer, but with just about anything. They're not quite sure where you fit into the hierarchy. So for some reason, they put me in the dressing room with the two captains. I was the only <laughs> guy that basically got dressed with the two captains every day, which was good. And one of those captains turned out to be the head coach of the national team who took the team to, uh, to uh, you know, this past World Cup, Akira Nishino. Um, so there was some pretty good benefits for, for, for dressing with the captains. So, uh, yeah, kind of quirky stuff like that. You know, the other thing that was a bit weird, like regardless of whether we had training that day or not, we all had to wake up at six in the morning and go for a walk together. Hmm. And, um, you know, I, I probably would could have extended my career a little bit longer <laughs> if I hadn't been so intrigued by the Tokyo nightlife. Mm-hmm. And I go out a lot and sometimes sneak back to the dormitory with one or two of the other players so that we could change in our clothes and go for our walk. Mm-hmm. Uh, Would yeah. you like to tell those stories here? Or do you want to keep <laughs> yeah, those probably. to yourself? <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll save that for if you invite me back, if see how this one goes first. Well, now, listen, you can hang on to those. And when, when I see you for our next round of, for our next <laughs> round of beers, I can't wait to hear the stories. Oh, yeah. Now, Tom, Tom, I got a question for you because – as a player that had a career and then retired, it felt like the easy transition, the easy fallback was to get into coaching. Like, well, if I can't get any other job, I can always coach. And so I wonder if that was what you were thinking or if that's something you always wanted to do or when that passion to to coach happened to you or infected you, your personality in a positive way when you were in Japan because of something you saw within that culture. No, that's a great question, Jimmy. I got really interested in coaching, believe it or not, when I was already in high school in New York. And the reason was, is that again, my coach at Ulster County Community College, Coach George Rizvari, who's a Hungarian, who actually played with Pushkis back in the day. Oh my God. Um, And so... There were, you know, back in the, and we're, I'm going to date myself here, but <laughs> this was back in the 1970s, right? This is the NASL. This is the New York Cosmos, Pele, you know, Beckenbauer. That was my team because I'm from New York, right? And I started working in the summertime in high school um, at camps because, as you guys know, camp, is, camp business is just, and the culture is massive in America. So I, I got the coaching bug back then. And it wasn't, to be honest with you, so much that, I enjoyed like getting out and coaching kids, but it was that camaraderie and Mm -hmm. being around. And, you know, a lot of the camps back in the olden days, maybe it's the same. They brought over a lot of coaches from overseas, in particular, a lot of English coaches would come over with the with the with the silly with the silly, you know, funny accents back in those days. Right. No, no, that hasn't changed. And that's (laughs) they make a lot of money, whether they have any experience or not doing that. It's a different conversation. But uh, yeah, I had some pretty pretty good role models. Um, I don't know if you guys know, but there's a guy by the name of Tommy Mulroy. I don't know if you know Tom Mulroy or not. Mm. Tommy um, grew up as a as a as a soccer clinician, Mm. um, played in the old NASL. Um, he's, he, 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 his probably last high profile job, he was the president of the Fort Lauderdale strikers a couple of years ago. He lives mm-hmm. in Miami. So Tommy went to Ulster County community college as well. He was several years older than me. And Tommy was like the epitome of like a soccer clinician. Mm-hmm. His, his whole shtick was he was a juggler. He even once held the world, the Guinness Book of World Records for juggling a ball on the observatory floor 
of the Empire State Building as a promo for the New York team. And it was the outdoor team at the time. But he wound up playing at the New York Arrows as well, indoor. So anyway, Keith Tozer, who, you know, is still around, who does, you know, a lot of the futsal stuff. So these Mm -hmm. guys were my kind of elders that I hung around with. And they were all really, really top soccer clinicians going around. And 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 I just uh, I got into that. So that's what I, I kind of brought to Japan as well because I'm getting ahead of myself. But I really was interested in just being kind of a clinician. There's a big difference between a clinician and someone who actually just goes and coaches kids mm-hmm. for an entire season. I've done yeah. that as well. But mine has been mostly in the event space. Of, yeah, of, as and then I as I've watched you and... And you have an amazing background doing some of those things for Adidas back in the early days. And you've told me how you got with the, the, I think the sponsorship group came in and Adidas came in and you did these, these, these camp spaces, but you eventually, and we can talk about that too, but you eventually evolved into your soccer starts at home stuff, right? Where you started working with the youngest age groups and stuff at home. Why, like, what was the, what was the catalyst? What was the impetus? What sparked you to, to move from camp, which was doing very well for you, which I think, you know, was a major piece over there in Japan at the time to then your soccer starts at home movement. Yeah. A couple of things, you know, there's a, there's a timeline. Um, and when I, I I brought over the, the curver program here after the Mm -hmm. Dutchman will curver, which for people who listening or watching don't know, but curver is the name of a, a Dutchman who really pioneered the whole concept of teaching technical skills, individual technical skills. And I, I was introduced to that by Paul Mariner, um, who, you know, yeah. a mm-hmm. great player for England, played in the 82 World Cup in Spain, scored two or three goals, and spent a, a qu- quite a bit of time in the uh, in the U.S. as well, in the MLS at, at New England Revolution. Paul got me interested in the work of that. So I brought that to Japan and... What happened was, is that I fell in love with this whole idea of of teaching technical skills. Um, And so I brought that to Japan, created a company, created an organization to this day is just a massive organization here in Japan. We have over 120 Curver schools here in Japan with a full-time staff of over 200 coaches. That turns over approximately 25 million US dollars a year. It's a huge, I think it's probably the largest commercial soccer school business in the world, perhaps. Are you and still heavily involved in that? Yeah. Can no, we franchise I, that here in the States? Yeah. Is there, can we start well, talking it, off? It, it, it's kind of funny because I, first of all, I spun out of it. I, I have literally nothing to do with it for mm-hmm. 10 years. Um, and to be honest with you, I mean, since we're, we're, we're talking some serious talk here, I, I had a falling out with them and I left. And so I, I left that. And after having been casted on Japan's number one TV show for children and having my own corner for 14 years every day in uh, Japan's number one comic book, I had done like over 2,000 events. My VHS videos were number one at the time. So the reason I'm saying that is because I got a bit burnt out and yeah. I, I kind of walked away from it for a while and I had to kind of go and reinvent myself. And while I was reinventing myself, just happened to coincide with 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 my first son being born in 2006. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't really until my son was born that I had a rethink about development um, mm-hmm. because I was always working, as most coaches do, you inherit players, right? I, and I always say that we're very fortunate because mo- most of the time, especially when we're talking about young kids, we inherit the best players. Now we can make them better, 
but it's very rare that a coach can say that they had a big impact on a player unless you're talking about from the entry level. And the entry mm-hmm. level to me is pre-six years of age because that's mm-hmm. when you cross over the line in organized play. So, again, getting back to that, how did I have that whole soccer starts at home? It was when my, my, my son was born. Yeah. And I, I had kind of a, a basically a plan, um, not so structured, um, kind of by trial, whatever. But I knew as a technical coach the importance of ball mastery. So yeah. that's how I got interested in the whole thing with my kids. Um, and yeah, then it's, it's interesting. I mean, I did the same with my oldest. You know, um, and perhaps I started the movement because he's an 04 and yours was an 06. So I feel like there's some things you may have taken from me without knowing it. (laughs) I'm just saying. Uh, And what I used to do with him is we used to put tennis balls around the house. We used to put the big bouncy balls that you get at the the grocery store in those big bins. And we just let him kick them and play with them. And it's funny because you and I have talked about this before. But my whole goal was that he loved the ball and that he loved playing with it. And I know that's the crux of your stuff. And for me on the psych side of it is when kids love what they do, when they're competent at what they do. And again, you have, you're not talking about this a million times that play, that love is like, it's, it's never going to leave them. Now forget about the technical aspect of it because all three of my sons who did this when they were little are are technical. Right. And that's never going to leave them. However long they're in this, this, this period at home, that's never going to leave them. And that love and desire, honestly, is what I've seen them when they stop and they watch a game because it's cultural. You know, yeah. we talk about that. And that, that is the piece that I think people don't really understand as much as they could about yourself. The sports psych stuff behind your um, um, soccer starts at home yeah, is huge and so spot on. It, it is. And, and to be honest with you, it's evolved significantly over mm-hmm. the years. And if you look at like... I mean, what I'm doing today um, is much, much, much different than what I was doing even, I mean, yesterday. I mean, I'm constantly evolving. And the reason is, is because I hit such a, we'll use a metaphor here, a home run, although we're talking about soccer. When I was writing that book, Soccer Starts at Home, my big, big breakthrough. And I'll tell you, if it hadn't been for the guy I'm going to talk about in a second here, I would have maybe gone in a completely different direction. And that person is Dr. John Rady. Uh, one of the foremost neuropsychiatrists on planet Earth from Harvard University Medical School. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Rady had contacted me because he was doing some work in China. I was doing some work in China. And he had come across some article or media thing that I did. And I, I, I literally got a, a instant message from him on Facebook um, asking if, if, if I'd, I could have a chat with him. And that, and I just finished writing the book, the manuscript. It hadn't been published yet, and he's written twelve books. Um, probably the most famous of them all is called Spark, which has sold millions of copies. And he's really the specialist when it comes to studying the effects um, on on academia and just the, he, he's a he's a brain science uh, specialist. How did he hear and, about you? There you go. Look at that. Hey, we've got some jokes coming here now too, huh? <laughs> so, so basically he opened up a whole new world to me because I'd had these, so he, he read the manuscript and he liked it so much. He wound up writing the forward and the afterward for my book. Now, why is that important? Because I don't come from the neuroscience world or the academia world, the medical world, but he does. 
And that just was a, that was a completely big, huge change in my whole understanding of why things that were, I was seeing in my living room with my kids and I'd come, you know, I've got like, I've got lots of videos. I've got, I basically documented the development of my kids from the time they could walk. And when I started understanding the science behind it, it was fascinating to me. So I've really delved very deeply into neural science. I've, I've studied it so much. Um, and, and it's a fascinating world and to understand and really connect the dots of what's happening with kids, with the brain science is fascinating. So that was a big, big opening for me. No, no, I'm fascinated about, about this. And we have talked about it before as well. There's, there's two components that I think are really important to what you're doing. I assume what you're referencing in some capacity is the confidence that it gets to master something because I can see my kids visibly change when they can do and pull something off that they couldn't do before. They put time into it. They accomplish that goal and that gives them very similar to how, when I had my own path and became a professional, Oh, good. I, I accomplished that. Let's what's next. What else can I accomplish? Do you set these kind of this, 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 your brain starts to understand the rhythm to struggle, work through it, succeed, struggle, work through it, succeed. And you don't, you don't fear failure uh, in the same type of way. You almost embrace failure. That that's one thing. And then the second part, is the physiological side of it. Because I think one of the hidden gifts of one of the moves that you highlight is the pullback. And I really think that the the weight distribution from left to right and right to left is so important to the balance of a kid and and how comfortable they get, not only with the ball, but just in the the way that they teach their body how to move. And that allows them to, to move almost in every single direction very comfortably. And I think that's one another hidden thing that's that's uh, underlying in a lot of your messaging. And, and you've hit the nail on the head, absolutely. So you know the real quick pitch, elevator pitch here is that what I hadn't understood that I understand now is that when I had set, I basically set my home up to become very conducive to development. Now, I became very fascinated in development and I started researching like, you know, why out of, you know, eight countries at a 211 member associations of FIFA, only eight have won a World Cup tournament. Right. And so when you study them, I couldn't find any kind of real common denominator of, you know, was it the coaching? Was it the environment? Do they have better facilities? Do they have these national curriculums? And I started figuring out that they had cultures that were conducive to developing players and the early start they got. So I set up my home inadvertently. Back then it was trial by error, whereas now today, fast forward, I can do it by design. And that's what I do a lot of my work. But the, the house becomes such an incredible uh, developmental uh, environment because, and, and here's what I learned was, is that because the home is a very safe, protective environment, away yeah. from ridicule, like you said, a kid can fail or there's no real pressure to succeed. And that really sets up a whole kind of domino effect because, and I say this to parents, this is the gift for the parents, is understanding your child's need for parental approval, parental attention, parental praise, creates that chemical electrical process throughout the body and the mind or the brain, which is emotions. Yeah. So when you create an emotionally charged environment, that's where deep learning and long-term memory takes place. So this is some of the things that I learned. And, and I remember whenever I talked to J Dr. D John Rady on the phone, we've done quite a bit of, of, you know, when I chat with him and collaborate with him, 
I have a I have a notebook because the guy's so brilliant. I mean, I'm just writing there, like hanging on every word that he said. <laughs> I remember him telling me, he said, listen, you don't realize. He said, when a child can do something and learns or masters a skill by a very young age, that's self-belief. That's just self-confidence. Yeah. When a kid can yell out, mommy or daddy, <clears throat> I did it. And that's a very, very powerful developmental cocktail, literally. So you're absolutely right. And then again, yeah, the physical literacy part of actually also kind of, you know, ingraining in a child to not just run around and kick the ball chaotically. Think about it. If you put a ball down for a very young kid, I'm talking about two, three, four, five years old, you have that image of them just running around and, and, and kicking the ball. But again, here's where the neuroscience comes in on it. When you get a child and they're, and they're working and they're exercising, doing ball mastery, that's basically a calming down of the child. It's almost like a meditative state. And here's the other real gift that comes from the neuroscience world. And that is, is that the part of the brain that's responsible for ball mastery is the cerebellum. Now, the cerebellum for many decades or hundreds of years was, 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 was thought to only be responsible for, um, for motor skills or motor functions, balance, coordination, motor skills. But the new neuroscience now shows that the cerebellum is responsible for much more. And that is thinking, remembering, which is memory, uh, controlling emotions, okay, uh, reading what they call single digit mathematics. So this is the reason that we've been embraced now by the educators as well, because there's a knock-on effect. And the more that a child is active in ball mastery, the more it complements the thinking, the remembering, the controlling of the emotions. So when I think back now and I look at the videos of my kids 10 years ago, and I see that they're in a very calm, meditative state, and and they're in a space, and they're, they're trying to control the ball more than kicking it, that basically makes the brain work in a much more cohesive manner. So if you were to take a, an FR, MRI, a functional MRI of kids after they do ball mastery, <clears throat> you see that the part of the brain that lights up is going to be very balanced. Yeah. And in the neuro world, what that, what that does is it makes the brain function in what they call a much more cohesive, smooth way. So it supercharges learning. It helps the brain actually learn better. So this is the part, you know, that's just so fascinating to me. And, and, and you know, the neuro, I don't uh, profess to be an expert on this, but I got a guy like Dr. John Rady who is. So it's been a fascinating journey for me and I'm still learning. Well, you, you've said a couple of interesting things. Number one, um, <clears throat> you and I have talked a number of times and you've never bought, brought a, a pad to write on. And so I, now, now I understand that I need to really up my game in order for you to bring the pad to our dinners <laughs> and our meetings. Uh, the second thing is, and I think this is one of the most interesting things about you, is that environment that you set up um, was brilliant. And, and again, I know you, so I know who you are, is very non-judgmental. You know, that non-judgmental environment. And I think this is where parents drop the ball, for lack of better terminology. They come and they go, here's 10 balls, kick them. You know, and it's like, mm, that's not really what we're talking about here. Or, or they'll say, well, Tom is advocating that you only do this and that you do this and you push this on it. That's not what you're talking about. And I think that's a really important piece because that non-judgmental piece provides an opportunity for control, which probably allows for that brain research you're talking about and that comfort level, 
which then also gets to the piece that Jimmy was talking about a while ago when he talked about that that ball mastery and that that um, you know do make a mistake, repeat, and then get better and get better and better, builds confidence, builds control, all because the parent has put down this, this marker of just go and play, you know, which is so underestimated when you're developing culture and you're creating this opportunity for the kid to love the game, where at five, he or she is going, I can't wait to go knock the ball around. And all of a sudden they go and they knock the ball around. It's like, oh, they love it. You know, yep. they love it. Definitely. Absolutely. And then, and, it, and, and then it also – it's promoting, you know, physical literacy from a very, very young age. So you're right. The yeah. balance, the right foot, left foot. And, you know, well, what you're, yep. sorry, well, what you're doing in the States and I'll throw it back to you, you know, I know what you're doing with Houston, which maybe talk about a little bit here yep. in, in the school systems, man, I would love to see that in, in, in other areas. And I know the folks that you've talked about around the country, I won't mention names. That's up to you to do. I will. Jimmy, you're not allowed to do that. <laughs> um, but but I think again, talk a little bit about that because you're now you're into the school system and yeah. and you're into you're into the Houston area, and all of a sudden yep. they're they're the fruits of that labor of of the love of the game, right? Which is good for the Houston Dynamo, right? And the Dash yep. and, how, and how they move forward with fans. But it's also then what that fruit will bear in 10, 12 years when those kids are playing. Yeah, absolutely. And and the thing is, is that our program fits. It's very interesting. You know, it doesn't necessarily fit in the context of a team. It fits in the context of families. Mm -hmm. So the big challenge always, or has been is, well, who do you hit your wagon to that can deliver your message? Right. Um, so hence fast forward now. Yeah. I work with the Houston dynamo and I have a three-year contract and it's taken a year to a year and a half to get to where we are today where mm -hmm. we just, when I say today, literally within like the last 48 hours, we launched a massive program with the Houston Independent uh, School District, which is the largest, it's the second or third largest school district in the United States. It's huge. Mm. And they've given us access to their, to their kids and their staff and, and their families. And how that came about was basically, I mean, my work with the Houston Dynamics, it, we, there's a lot of layers in what we do. You know, you think it's just, okay, go and educate a bunch of coaches, but it, 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 that's, that's the wrong way to think. Mm -hmm. it's, it's everybody. It's, I, I call it the, the soccer ecosystem out there. Mm -hmm. And I tell the story, which is so, so apropos for Houston, and I love this metaphor, man. I, I tell it in my events now of the, and maybe you guys have heard this kind of story. I don't know where it came from, but apparently someone's over at NASA in Houston and they see this woman walking around, you know, with a bucket and a mop. Um, and they ask her, they say, uh, you know, what, what do you do here? What's your job? And she says, I put people on the moon, right? So the whole idea is, is that, you know, everybody is moving in the same direction. They understand what the ultimate goal is, right? And what happened was I was invited to um, Houston by... Uh, I don't know, maybe one of Jimmy's old teammates, if you played with him, uh, Brian Ching. Yeah, I played with him on the national team. Yeah. So Brian somehow got on to me, and uh, I think he read the book or something, contacted me, and we, it culminated in a phone call from my living room here. And Brian said to me, hey, listen, if you're ever back in the States again, come on by to Houston. So I took him up on it. I paid. I, I, I was, for some reason, in the States, paid my own way, flew over to Houston, and then Brian organized that first visit. He organized uh, over at their um, at their facility 
for me to do a presentation to his academy coaches. And so I did that and apparently they liked it because I'm uh, then it culminated in a, in a, in a contract with them. And then I came back and, and, and Paul Holler, who's the Academy director there, who I, I know, I think you guys know, I think mm-hmm. Lee knows for sure. And um, they embraced it. And I'll tell you what, when I, when I did, before I signed the contract, I was really, you know, based on all my experience and working around the world, I was really, um, you know, I, I was, uh, I'm trying to think, sometimes I lose my mind here thinking English. I can think in Japanese words. Can you imagine? <laughs> say it in Japanese. Say it in Japanese. Yeah. Well, I was determined. Okay. I was determined. Right? So <laughs> I was basically determined to get the full buy-in for the club because unless you get the full buy-in from everybody, it's very difficult to navigate through these organizations. So I wound up, I believe on that first trip or second trip meeting with, with John Walker, who's the president of the Houston Dynamo. And I showed him the presentation and like most other people, it's, it's pretty much a no brainer, the presentation when you see it and, you know, embraced by the whole entire organization. I even asked them, I said, listen, I would love to do the presentation for the entire organization, every person that works in your organization. And they delivered that as well. So it's a, it's, it's a great relationship. Yeah. Uh, no, that's amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm happy because we've had conversations in the past and I guarantee yeah. this is going to happen by the way. And in 10 or 15 years, people are like, how did the Houston Dynamo get so good? And they're going to be like, well, Tom Beyer. And and I've been shouting to the heavens and yep. to the people that actually have power in this country. And you tell me you meet with them about getting you involved in a more meaningful way so that you can help kind of revamp the very complicated youth structure in this country. Yep. And yet they're like, oh, Tom, it's it's great. But they never buy in. They, yeah. they, they, they tell you what you want to hear. They, I, I assume they can understand what you're saying. Maybe they yep. can't. And finally, we have a, a club here, um, an MLS club that's buying all the way in. And I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be massive. And so I'm congratulations on that. And I'm very excited for you and for Houston for, for being the first to do so in, in a really meaningful way. My question, though, is with regard to parents, because and I have two little ones as well. I have balls all over the house. They are... They like to touch the ball, but it's not because of my playing experience. I know they need to touch it more <laughs> if they want to, yeah. if they really want to get to, I don't, I'm not asking them to be pros. I'm yeah. not asking them to, to get college, college scholarship would be nice, but I'm not, that's, there's no pressure there, but, but there's a part of me that would really like them to be good for their high school team. Yeah, because I course. feel like that changes your high school experience to be a part of something bigger than yourself. And so there is a little bit of a push for me and I've been transparent with them about that. But, and I kind of speak for all parents, how, even though you have all this stuff and you're encouraging them, how much is too much encouragement and, and how much is too little? I mean, it, it, I, I, listen, I'm going to answer my own question. I know that it's up to the kid to decide how good they're going to be at anything. But, but how much encouragement from parents, because it starts at home, yep. do you think that parents should have? And where's that line? I think the one really important point is, and I got this from researching players because I've researched just about every great player that you can imagine. Uh, back in the olden days, decades ago and today, Messi, Ronaldo, Suarez, Iniesta, Modric, Pogba, all the great players, right? And I was researching Neymar, and I came across this brilliant quote interview from his dad. And he said, basically, I'll paraphrase it, but what he says, he said, people don't realize that down here in Brazil, kids don't, kids don't fall in love with football. They fall in love with the ball. They fall in love with the ball, and that facilitates the falling in love with the game. 
So I can't help but think that in America, we do it in reverse. We try to force the kid to fall in love with the game and the ball gets in the way. So what I tell parents is the first thing is, is that basically try to introduce, of course, you know, it's the no brainer, small kids, small foot, small ball, try to introduce them to the, to the game, get them comfortable. And the whole goal is, is to, before they cross over that line in the organized play at the age of six, that they have a certain degree of comfort with the ball at their feet. And if they do, I'm convinced that that's the big game changer because what happens is, and I've seen it with my own kids, is that when they cross over that line in organized play and they're competent, and what, when I mean competent, what I'm talking about are some core movements that are stopping and starting with the ball, turning, changing direction, being able to pull the ball back and go in a different direction, and more importantly, learning how to protect the ball from a very young age. So what happens is they show up to their first ever practice they're going to have more confidence. Those kids turn out to be the most popular kids because the other kids gravitate towards the kids that are better. And then you've got coaches that are usually singling out and asking the better kids to demonstrate. So a kid at six years of age is already getting the opportunity and experience at leadership at six or seven. So again, a whole bias manifests that helps that kid. Um, and the experience is just, you know, much more supercharged. And what we see is if you look at the numbers of the kids that came out from the, um, the uh, Institute, uh, Aspen Institute of Sport, if I'm getting it right, those are the three words. I don't know if I got them in the right row, <laughs> but basically 38.5% of kids who play soccer in America quit by the age of seven and another 50% drop off by the age of 10. And get this, out of all team sports in America, 70% quit by the age of 13. That's crazy. So Houston, we've got a problem. So the, 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 you know, that's that the old, you know, <laughs> we got you. <laughs> but by the way, guys, by the way, guys, I've used that joke several times in Houston and nobody laughs. So apparently that. that only came from the movie and nobody's caught on to that yet. <laughs> it's the ongoing joke with some of the staff from the dynamo. I use it. I don't, and nobody laughs. But anyway, <laughs> to answer your question, the, the other thing is, and, and this was a learning curve for me as well, is that when kids are doing things in and around the house, I saw that they were very, very good with the ball, very confident, very competent with the ball, but it didn't necessarily play out immediately when they got with their team. So what happens though, is that think of it almost as a hard drive, what, you know, technical skills and the use of technical skills, it's an unconscious process. So explaining to parents how that works, the more that, the, why repetition is so important, and this is an important point, and this is what we do. We go around and we hold what we call these ignition events for parents because they do have to have a certain degree of understanding more than, hey, I met this American guy says, you know, put a couple balls in the living room. My kid's going to play like uh, like Alex Morgan or Landon Vaughn <laughs> or maybe Jimmy Conrad, huh? <laughs> that wouldn't take too long. It only like maybe a year or two to catch up. So they need to understand what the process is, you know. That's why it's, it's very important to educate the parents so that they understand what's actually happening. But when a kid is basically doing these technical skills, what they're doing is they're literally wiring the the, the, the brain. So... There's a saying in the neuroscience world that, that cells that wi a fire, a wire, a fire together. Here we go. Nerve cells that fire together also wire together. So when they say wire together, what they mean is they create neural pathways. 
They're creating neural networks. And the way that you do that is by repetition, by doing it mm-hmm. over and over and over and over again. And it really comes down to the, how much time a kid is playing with the ball. Unfortunately, soccer is not one of these Cinderella sports where the kid picks it up when he's like, you know, 13, 14 years of age, and he goes on to captain his national team. The reality is that very rarely happens. And the reason is, is because unfortunately, again, our sport takes a ridiculous amount of practice to become good at it. So unless you start them out early and they have a good experience, it's hard to keep them in the game. Now, that's that's my reference. That's how I look at it. But unfortunately, when you read all the surveys and the, uh, the research, and I get that sent to me because I've got in my con- a network around the world, you, they, they, the reason that they, they present that kids quit is that they, they point the rifles at the coaches and the parents. The parents are too pushy. Uh, coaches aren't good enough. Yeah, okay, I get that. But most of the time, they're having a terrible experience because they're going to practice. They're not, most of the kids who play soccer globally, I'm not talking about just in the U.S., globally, a majority are technically poor. They've never really learned the proper skills. So it's, it's our whole program is to try to get kids off to a flying head start before they show up to the first round. Now, the next question might be, well, okay, sorry, my kid didn't, you know, I didn't know about Tom Beyer or soccer starts at home until, you know, my kid's six, seven, eight years old. Can he still improve? And I say, yes, any kid can always improve, but I still believe that the earlier you get those kids, obviously the more likely that you're going to have success, but anybody can improve. Um, so so Jimmy, the answer to your question is let him play with the ball. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how old are your kids now? The little ones? Uh, my they're nine and 13. My, now my 13 year old has been touching the ball for a few years and, and she's got, she's very coachable. So you can show her something once and she can uh, adapt and, and pull it off. She has that base kind of movement for, yeah. for the big challenge for her. And I'm sure a lot of other parents run into this is she gets frustrated very quickly. So, you know, one day she'll juggle 10, 15, 30 times. And then the next day she can only do eight. And she, she just, she, I'm like, Whoa, you gotta, you gotta relax. You know, well, this is a process. And what I tell parents, and 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 I go back to in the beginning, I was tell, talking about this buddy of mine, Tommy Mulroy, who set the Guinness Book of World Records for juggling. Mm-hmm. So because Tommy was kind of the idol for us younger guys that went to that that grew up with him, we were all good jugglers. I could, I actually made a video. I've got to dig it out somewhere. Literally, <laughs> I made a video, and I have it somewhere—a VHS video box up in my in my uh, up in the. I bet you do. I bet you I do. do. <laughs> and listen. I juggled the ball 10,000 times. It took me two oh hours. Wow. And I, I actually videoed this. But what I'm saying is, is that I don't promote that now. When my kids were, were well, well, they're still small because my two boys, one's 11, one's 14. The juggling stuff, let it come later, man. But too many people get caught up in wanting to teach and learn how to juggle the ball. And the reason is, is because kids like to do two things. They like to show up to practice in front of the goal and everybody shoot on goal and yeah. they like to juggle. And the reason, because it's competition against their buddies. So they come up, Hey oh, Lee, yeah. I did, I did 200. I did. But I'll, I'm not saying it's a waste of time, but unfortunately to become a good juggler, especially at the younger ages takes a ridiculous amount of practice time hours. And yeah. I yeah. would much rather encourage those kids to have the ball on the ground, become the world's best at pulling the ball back become the world's best at stopping and starting with the ball and accelerating. When you look at Messi, Messi doesn't have any signature move. 
He's basically the world's best at stopping, starting, turning, cutting, changing direction. And then he has rocket acceleration. So I say to kids, you might want to practice that. And, 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 and at any age you can improve by doing that. So, you know, one of the things, again, that's why it's important to educate. And, and you might say, well, Hey, you know, Jimmy Conrad played in the world cup. Shouldn't he know better what to do with his kids? So here I'll tell you (laughs) this one. I'm sitting in, I'm in a presentation and I've got across from me, Rio Ferdinand, Rio Ferdinand from Manchester United literally flew all the way over to China because he wanted to see the presentation, Football Starts at Home. I spent a couple of hours with him in a room, in a hotel. And after I showed him the presentation, this is exactly what it did. And I wish I could do a good British accent, but I'm not going to attempt it. He He sat back and he crossed his arms like this. And he said, is it too late for an eight-year-old because I've been doing everything wrong with my son? <laughs> so, so here's a guy, you know, played in the World Cup, Captain England. He's won Champions League. He's done everything. And he said, I mean, I've been very fortunate to be able to be around some of the I, – I, um, I was asked to present this to Maurice Pochettino from Spurs, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So I'm able to – and I'm, I'm dropping these names because – not to pat myself on the back, but I've been very fortunate because I've been able to present to, you know, the biggest and the best in the world. Um, and, and, and the takeaway was, and no disrespect for them, but the few people have a very good understanding of what it is that you teach to small kids. And when they see the kid that shows up on YouTube or at, at a training or at a game that's like six, seven years old, and the, and the kid's like a whiz kid, they think it's like lightning struck in a bottle and like, whoa, it's like the next method. No, you'll find the same thing, man. Early age engagement, parents that engage in around the home before he or she showed up to their first practice. It's, it's the same story over and over and over again. So the message is quite simple, but it's a little bit complex. You have to understand a little bit more than just put the balls in the rooms and let the kids go off with it. So that's, yeah. you know, that's that's what we're trying to do is try to empower Great parents stuff. to work with their kids. Great yeah. Stuff. Tom, thank, thank you so much for sharing that Rio Ferdinand thing. Cause it makes me feel a lot better about maybe messing was, up as well. Jimmy, that, that means a lot. To do, man. I don't want you to go home and, you know, like start crying or, you know, or whatever. <laughs> that's the next show. Yeah. That's the next show. Like the, the post Tom Byers show. Well, Tom, we thank you so much for your time and for dropping knowledge bombs on us and our audience. Uh, you are the man and, and uh, the best of luck. Uh, with the Houston Dynamo. And then where can everybody find your book? Yeah, that's a great question. Here it goes. It's a very long one word. Soccer starts at home book.com. Soccer starts at home book.com. You go on to that um, and you'll find it. And you'll find a very, very nice endorsement by my good friend Anson Dorrance the winningest coach in the history of the NCAA tournament, winning that national championship 22 times. And he's got a very nice plug about the book and the work. So uh, check it out if you you can. That's great. Well, thank you, Tom. And thank to everyone listening at home. We'll catch up with you again very soon. And actually, we're going to start making this every Wednesday and Saturday. So check it out.